One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Extra, extra, read all about it. Jack the Ripper kills Fifth in Miller's Court. With the inquest into Mary Jane Kelly's death, concluding she was murdered by persons unknown, this marked the end of Jack the Ripper's reign of terror. As oddly, the press's interest had begun to wane. With the Second World War looming like an ominous fog of death, the murders of three dead women in a seedy part of Soho, French Fifi, Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia, seemed insignificant. Just months before, the tabloids had slathered with talk of fear, menace and mystery as a foreign monster with an ape-like gait slayed a slew of unworthy women in a fevered panic amidst the West End sex trade. Whereas once, the Soho Strangler was an international sensation. But now his crimes and his victims weren't worth the ink. As the public's only source of fact, the press had misled and lied to keep the myth about a serial strangler alive having even distorted witness testimony and derailed an investigation in the name of circulation. The murders were unnervingly similar, but this could easily have been just a coincidence. The press would state his victims were petite French brunettes. Only one was English. And given that a woman's average height in the 1930s was five foot one, and most prostitutes trafficked into London were French, the law of averages would suggest that they look similar. As with where the women were murdered, most lodgings for sex workers in Soho's red light district consisted of rooms above a shop, accessed by a single street door, and subdivided into small bedsits. As for his method of attack, knocking a girl semi-unconscious with a fist to the face and strangling her with a hand or a stocking, it's not an uncommon assault as it happened to Fifi just one week before. With no robbery, no sexual assault and no fingerprints, there was no conspiracy or cover-up. 
as being in and out too quick to leave any hint of his identity. As the police had said right from the start, the most likely suspect was a man who frequented brothels and had a history of violence against prostitutes. In short, they may have argued over money. He hit her. He panicked and then strangled her to stop her screaming. And that's the problem. Serial killers are front-page news. Whereas a sad, cowardly little man getting angry at being overcharged for sex is not. Like the others, she was known by many names. Elsie McMahon, Charlotte Tolkien, Fifi, French Marie, French Paulette, and to some simply as the French woman. And like Roger Vernon's mistress, she was also known as French Suzette. Only her life would begin far from the streets of Paris. Lottie Asterley, as her birth certificate states, was born on the 15th of December 1889 at Croydon Workhouse Infirmary in South London. Known as Elsie Charlotte Asterley, she was the illegitimate child of Nora Asterley, an English domestic servant. And although unlisted, her father was possibly an Irishman called McMahon. Although described as a petite French brunette, with a billowy cloud of reddish-brown hair, she was a little taller, a little older, and although all of the women were slightly curvy, she was larger and bustier than the others. As a toddler, Marie, as she liked to be known, was placed into care and raised at our day-of-the-day convent at Boulogne-sur-Mer in France. Which is why, being a fluent speaker with a Côte de Pal accent and only able to speak in broken English, those who knew her often mistook her as French. No longer a ward of the state, in 1905 she returned to England, living in the West End with her mother. And that year, aged just 16, Elsie Charlotte Astley married Victor Token at St Pancras Registry Office in a very brief marriage of just six months before she fled to France with a man known only as Mr Richard. Said to be in newspapers, she followed him from England to France and on to Guadeloupe for six years. How they lived, what they did and for what reason will never be known until the outbreak of the First World War, when she returned to London. And being an unskilled woman, unable to divorce, she would furnish her meagre wage as a chambermaid, as well as her addictions with casual prostitution. Sex work filled a financial hole but it was a hole in her heart which left the biggest gap. 
investigated, but with proven alibis for the day of her murder. Marie had two men who she loved. Jean-Emile Ormont was a French bigamist who she called Papa and lived with on Chitty Street. And although it's unknown if he was her pimp, she aided his deportation and she hadn't seen him since. Second was Novice Norton, a married draper's shop owner, educated in Belgium and fluent in French, who was a man who clearly loved her. Letters in her flat spoke of his undying love. But having grown tired of her binge drinking, their relationship had begun to drift. One week before her murder, he politely suggested they split. He didn't see her after this date, and when the police informed him of her death, he genuinely looked heartbroken. In her 48 years alive, Marie's life was often loveless and hard. But she never gave up. Often homeless, she didn't sleep rough. As casual work could fund her a night in a refuge. Or through prostitution, she would get men to buy her a drink, a meal and a place to sleep. In return for sex and a little money. She didn't have a pimp or a ponce. And as a part-time prostitute, French Marie was widely liked, but known by few. She hadn't been threatened. She had no known connections to the other victims. And she sometimes suffered assaults by drunken punters, which went unreported. Struggling to hold down a job owing to her drinking. Having been admitted to a temperance hospital on the Hampstead Road in Euston for a week. By Christmas 1936, she was employed as a cleaner at the Ross Institute for Tropical Diseases on Keppel Street. And supplemented by sex work, she moved into a small one-room lodging on the second floor at 306 Euston Road where she lived, sold sex, and just a few months later, she would be strangled to death. With the myth about a monster and the story of the Soho Strangler as dead and buried as his victims, although most articles about this murdered woman was relegated once again, to a small paragraph hidden within. The press's reporting was almost accurate. Any mistakes weren't malicious, just lazy. And their factual coverage of this case was reflected in the truthful testimony of the subsequent witnesses. Monday the 16th of August, 1937 was Marie's last day alive. And it was as ordinary as any other.
dressed in a dark green jumper, a dark green frock, and a little black hat, but no scarf. At 11.30am, Marie entered the Golden Compass pub at 341 Euston Road, a short walk from her flat. Hello, Marie. What are you having? Served two pints of Reed Stout by Patrick Jordan, the barman, who had known this regular but heavy drinker for the last few months. He said she sat quietly in the corner with an unseen person and left by 12pm. At noon, alone, she entered the Adam and Eve pub at 284 Euston Road, a place she visited daily. Across a public bar and a saloon, it was sparsely filled with just 10 customers and a barman, many of whom knew her, liked her, and would chat with her that day. Later to be joined by the man who would murder her. Unlike the post-midnight sighting on Old Compton Street of the man who may have murdered Dutch Leia, the bar was brightly lit, relatively quiet, and there were few obstructions for the witnesses. Barman Joseph Clancy served Marie a large glass of Australian wine, and she engaged in conversations in French and broken English with several customers. At 1.05 p.m., Reginald Marshall, George Pratt and Dominic Napolitan, three shop fitters on a lunch break, recalled seeing Marie happily chatting with two of her friends. May Kenny, a housewife, and Charles Damey, an electrician. May was drunk and slurring, but with a higher tolerance for booze, Marie held her own. Their mood was said to be normal. Throughout the next two to three hours, several customers entered the bar to buy off-sales, with the bottles of takeaway beer being stamped and dated with the pub's details, as was the legal requirement. At 2pm, Marie spoke in broken English to Gertrude Calthorpe, a local waitress. Being a few drinks in, Marie was swaying and slurring. But never being unpleasant or aggressive, she was described as merry. At 2.20pm, while Marie chatted with May, who needed holding up, her killer entered the public bar. He didn't skulk, he didn't hide, and he wasn't in disguise. He just went to the bar and ordered a pint. Being by himself, Frederick Thomas Dobson, an unemployed miner living in a men's hostel in Camden Town, struck up a polite conversation with the man and the two strangers enjoyed each other's company. 
later questioned about the man he had spoken to for roughly 40 minutes, in daylight and at a distance of barely two feet. Frederick described him as mid-thirties, five foot four, medium built, full face, sallow complexion, fair to brown hair parted to the side, clean shaven, thick jaw, dressed in a dark brown suit with a distinctive stripe on his soft collar, tie, and waistcoat. He also noted he spoke with a Newcastle accent. Oddly, he didn't look foreign, he didn't sound menacing, and he didn't walk with an ape-like gait. This monster, who was just hours away from strangling Marie, looked as normal as any other man. Many of the witnesses gave similar descriptions of this man, with the ages ranging from early 20s to mid-40s, and physically described as short and thin, with a pasty round face, flushed in the cheeks, and wearing a brown suit with no hat. In truth, he was 24 years old, 5 or 3 inches high, 10 stone in weight, with a pale flushed face and brushed back hair. But he was spot on about the Newcastle accent. To be honest, it didn't take much detective work to determine that Marie's killer was from that city in Northern England. As over a pint, the man openly chatted about his life, both past and present. Frederick would state, he said that he worked as a miner in Wales and Newcastle for roughly six years. During this conversation, Frederick saw Marie look across the bar in their direction and smile at the man. It seems odd that a man so hellbent on murdering petite French brunettes would walk into a public bar and openly discuss the facts about his life. But he did. But then again, being so ordinary, if a murder hadn't have happened, would anyone have remembered him? At 2.40pm, as Marie chatted to Gertrude, she waved at the man and he smiled back. She wasn't afraid of him, and she told no one anything about him. But to her pal, she laughingly remarked, I am getting off, which is prostitute slang for having sex with a punter, suggesting he was not a stranger. At 2.50pm, that same man chatted to George Bakewell, and although he didn't disclose his name, he spoke about being born in Newcastle, about how his last boxing match with a man named Maguire had ruined him, that until Monday morning he had worked at the Central Hotel in Malibu, but was fired for upsetting a milk churcher, and with him being unemployed and currently homeless, he showed me his work cards, and the two men agreed to meet up later so George could help him out. 
George waited at the pub from 5.30pm till 6pm as agreed. Only the men failed to turn up. Time, gentlemen, please. At 3pm, with the pub due to close, as was the law, Marie ordered two pint bottles of Guinness as off-sales, with each bottle stamped and dated with the pub's details and placed in a brown paper bag. Outside, several witnesses, including George Bakewell, the match seller, Frederick Dobson, the ex-miner, and Phyllis Kingham, a friend of Marie's, overheard this exchange between Marie and her killer, as well as it being witnessed by two passers-by, Thomas Leith, a fishmonger, and Henry Boone, a newspaper boy. He said, Are you going to take me home? She said, have you got any money? To which he put his hand in his right trouser pocket and pulled out what looked, to anyone less drunk than Marie, to be a fistful of coins. But as some of those who saw this would state, it was no more than half a crown. As they walked away, Heading down Euston Road and onto Hampstead Road, Marie shouted to Phyllis, I'll see you tonight. And she laughed as the man tried to kiss her, with a cigarette still sticking out of his mouth. At 3:20 p.m. Marie and the man turned onto Seedon Street, a bustling market where you could buy fruit and vegetables, clothes and shoes, meats, fish, and takeaway foods like peace pudding and saveloys. When questioned, although many struggled to recall such an ordinary sight, numerous witnesses gave identical statements and descriptions to the police. There was no criminal kingpin threatening the witnesses to remain silent, or locals being too afraid to speak. These were just ordinary people, seeing a woman they knew to be a prostitute, walking a punter along her regular route back to her flat. It was so ordinary and normal that by the time the moment had passed, they had already forgotten it. At 3.25pm, Gertrude Calthorpe, Marie's friend from the pub, saw her heading west, being held up by the man, and appeared to be browsing several of the stalls on her way to Bath Row. At 3.30pm, Sadie Gibber, a fruiter's assistant, saw Marie. She'd clearly been drinking, she would state. The man was trying to coax her, as staggering along, she held the man's right hand. And with the neighbouring stall being closed that day, she was annoyed as she couldn't get any meat for her cat. 
about the same time. Reuben Packcroft, a bookseller who often sold Marie copies of true detective stories, stated she was not steady on her feet. The man he described as a jolly chap, held her by the arm. He was amused and laughing. In court, Reuben would testify, I have known her to be, in the company of this man, two or three times prior. It makes sense, as with her killer, potentially being a person she liked and trusted, she would willingly let him into her home, maybe make him a cup of tea, and possibly prepare him a meal. If all he stole was the money he paid her, it would be impossible to prove whether a robbery had taken place. Having assaulted her, there may not have been any sex or rape, as his mind may have been on his escape. And with no hint of fear, she may have been strangled before her mouth could utter a single scream. Being angry and drunk, he may have fled before he left any fingerprints. And as an ordinary bloke, he could vanish, not through his own devious cunning, but because no one had noticed him. Just like Dutch Leia, at 3.40pm, Marie and her killer were seen entering her home at 306 Euston Road, where later she would be found strangled. Henry Radley, a fishmonger from next door, was outside of this address pumping up his bike tyre when they both passed him at the entry to Bath Row. He would state, The woman was in front. She opened the door with a key. The man, as he was on the steps, turned to me and smiled as they both entered the building. But unlike Dutch Lair, two tenants saw them inside the building. Mrs. Kathleen Uller on the first floor passed them on the stairs. And living one floor above Marie, as she entered her bins, Eva Schladever saw her being assisted up the stairs by a man, and then together they entered her second floor lodging. At roughly 4pm, Marie put on the wireless radio, as was typical, and Eva stated, I heard them singing and clapping to the music. It remained on for the rest of the afternoon, and as far as I know, Marie did not leave. At some point during the music, French Marie was murdered by a serial strangler. As before, no one saw or heard the last sounds of her demise. But why would they? 
when everyone's focus was on living their own lives. Thuds are mistaken. Cries drift on a wind. Screams get drowned out by horn honks. And even an ordinary murderer could vanish unseen, being just a face in a bustling crowd. At 6pm, a time verified by Mary Connell, who heard the whistle at the scent factory blow, said she saw thick plumes of dark smoke pour from a second-floor window. Alerting Gulam Mustafa, an Indian waiter on the ground floor, and Eva Shladova on the third, they spotted smoke seeping into the hallway from the slightly ajar door of Marie's room. Mustafa knocked, got no reply, so they entered. As a small bed sitting room, barely big enough for a small bed, a table, an armchair, a set of drawers and a washstand, a small fire was likely smouldering, as an oil lamp had probably smashed in the sink igniting a few rags, maybe a towel or a flannel, as well as a curtain which encircled the washstand for privacy. Gullum stamped out the burning cloths. Eva opened a window for air. And as the smoke cleared, on the bed they saw Marie. Fully clothed, her feet on the floor, her legs apart, and a cloth covering her face. As a drunk woman, prone to mishaps and afternoon naps, they thought she was sleeping, and with the fire out, they let her rest. Switching off the music to give her peace, they closed the door. unaware that she would never wake. It would be another murder, mistaken for an accident, and in one case, a suicide. But it was nothing clever. It wasn't premeditated. And there was no criminal mastermind pulling the strings of conspiracy. As with everything in life, we see what we want to see. If we believe this is the work of a cunning serial strangler, stalking Soho streets in search of similar-looking sex workers, who planned each crime scene down to the tiniest of details, then that is what we will see. But if, like the police, we see a drunken punter, whose anger sparked a moment of madness, who hastily erased even the briefest traces of himself before he fled unseen, then that is what we will see. The press will write what they write, and the reader will choose to believe what they will believe. But if you write it, it becomes fact. 
If you repeat it, it becomes proof. And if it appears in enough books, read by enough people who are willing to accept it as the truth, it becomes irrefutable as cast-iron evidence. An hour later, long after her killer had vanished, amidst the thick city smog, Gertrude Calthorpe had her daughter deliver a letter to Marie. With her still seemingly sleeping, as soundly as when they had left her, Mustafa and Eva accompanied the girl, and on the silent bed, they tried to rouse this motionless lady. Mustafa shook her arm, but she did not wake. Eva called her name, but she did not stir. Having pulled the cloth from her face, the threesome didn't recoil in shock, as her face wasn't a twisted mess of pain. If anything, it looked peaceful. With no ligature around her neck, and her face an odd shade. Suspecting that this chronic alcoholic had died in her sleep, they called the police. The first constable arrived at 7.25pm. An ambulance followed, and with her certified as dead, Dr. Alexander Baldy, the police surgeon, followed, and as was protocol in a suspicious death, the CID came too. Within the hour, the police would confirm that French Marie had been murdered. With no witnesses, no obvious robbery, no signs of a struggle, and no ransacking of the room, it looked unnervingly similar to the three other murders. But what made this one stand out was a crucial clue, as not only had 20 people seen his face, with some even hearing his possible life history, but this time he had left his fingerprints. Since Fifi's murder, the police had dismissed any notion of a serial killer, stating in a report dated the 9th of September 1937, the newspaper suggested that this murder, Marie's, was connected with the cases of strangulation of prostitutes in Soho in 1935 and 36. We have convinced them they are wrong. By this point, the press had lost interest and fixated on the belief that the most likely suspect would be a punter with a history of violence, especially strangulation, against prostitutes who had links to Soho and the West End and who, most likely, matched the suspect last seen with Dutch Leia. The police went in search of a suspect. Not a crime boss, a monster, a bohemian or a Jew but an ordinary man. 
this tried and trusted technique had failed three times before, with each inquest concluding that these women were murdered by persons unknown. Only this time, it was different. This time they had his face. This time they had his history. This time they had his fingerprints. And exactly as they had stated, right at the very start, they would arrest a man who had recently been convicted for strangling two sex workers. The police's most promising suspect in the murder of French Marie was a young, brown-haired serial strangler who visited prostitutes in Soho. The final part of the Soho Strangler concludes next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So there you have it, folks. There you have it. Oh my God, we're so close to the end. Oh, but I'm enjoying myself, which is important. Oh, I'm going to take you a little hat off. There you go. I'm enjoying this, telling this story, because it's so complicated and different, but it's it moves and shifts so much. And we're trying to explore a lot of ideas of uh, not accepting the facts that you're given, not 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 just accepting, reading, open, open a paper and going, oh, well, that, that, this is all the information, it must be true, or, 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 or books or documentaries or films or anything, just accepting things that are a fact. What I'm trying to do is say to you, here's the evidence about this particular case, now go away and look at all the other cases, have a look at Jack the Ripper, have a look at whatever, look at them and say, hang on, what's true? What do we know? Someone going past with a wheelie, wheelie suitcase 
that would ordinarily ordinarily be edited out with me going you mother of pearl how dare you mother of pearl uh, you are uh, i'm trying to record here but i'm not so anyway uh this is extra mile unscripted unedited bit uh we'll do some quiz questions in a bit we'll do some extra stuff i've still got to write the concluding part i know what i've got all my bits are in there but i'm going to be cautious about what i tell you next because i've been really cautious with this episode this has been a fun episode to write i'll be i'll admit sometimes like with the with the blackout ripper i deliberately wrote that way it was a killer in plain sight and what if you listen to episode one two three and four before you see him in episode five he's there he's always there he's in the background he's he's there he's right in your sight he's not hiding and that's the whole point about blackout ripper he's in your sight he's not He's not hiding in the shadows like a moo-ha-ha with a cape and a top hat and running into the fog like a twat. This is just a regular guy who murders prostitutes who's in plain sight. This is even more stark. This is... We we see him. He talked to people. He spoke about his life. Do you know, this is what makes it really interesting is that he doesn't... He's not hiding who he is. He just is who he is. So uh, this, this is going to take us to episode 10. So uh, yeah, this is all very exciting. Uh, let me go and put on my tea. I have prepped it. I think I've done myself a coffee. A quaffy. A cup of quaffy. There we go. Uh, let's pop that on. Uh, have I prepped that? Yeah, looks like I'm having a coffee. So that'll go cold in a bit and I'll go, ooh, I don't like that. So yeah, this is uh, almost ready to go. So where, what are we on now? I don't even know what the date is. What the date is, I'm whizzing through these now. 12th of March, you'll be in April. I'm trying to get ahead because this has taken up so much time. I want to I wanna focus on the next, the single part episodes to take us through for the rest of the year. I've researched them, I sat down, I've done a lot of pieces, but there's some, they still need going over and redoing and all that. Anyway, what's going on? Moving the boat tomorrow, whoopee-doo. Moving it, which means I won't be near my, my regular Starbucks, which is a shame. I've been there since... I've been using and abusing that since January. So uh, if I move my boat further north, I think there's another Starbucks there, but I won't be in my same seat. I won't know the people. Oh, such a shame. The swans knocking against my boat... Oh, now I'm coughing. Yeah, they're knocking against the boat. I think they've heard that I'm a, a soft touch for the coots. Fuck off. Um, trying not to eat cake at the moment because I've put on a lot of weight. I've ballooned out over Christmas. I've enjoyed the treats. Piss off. Uh, they're still there. So, um, yeah, no cake at the moment. Uh, what else is going on? Not much. I've got to fix my water filter. Oh. I'm I'm not very good at shit like this but anyway hopefully by the time you hear this I will have fixed it what else is going on oh a thank you to uh, new Patreon supporters pierce off see the you hear them right behind me banging away saying where's my bloody food thank god I'm not recording the regular part the proper part of this I'm just recording this shite, which, uh, who cares? Uh, so uh, thank you to new Patreon supporters, uh, James Marigold and The Shy One. So thank you, James, and thank you, The, or The Shy, uh, whatever your first name is. Thank you. Um, also, a thank you to Pam Kitchen uh, for the Starbucks voucher. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. So that will be uh, spent on decaf soya lattes and decaf hot chocolate. 
swans are still there banging oh so annoying uh this is i tell you what let me do the quiz questions now and then we'll dive into some stuff so get ready right question number one let's hope i'm still recording i am question number one what was french marie's birth name according to her birth certificate question number two in what building was she born question number three what was the name of her possible father Question number four, what job did Ghulam Mustafa do? He was the guy who kind of uh, tried to rouse her at the end of the episode. Question number five, uh, PCAG should be able to get this. Uh, What two brands of... Fuck off! What two brands of stout uh, was she drinking? It's really annoying. You can hear them right behind me. They just won't shut up. They're like, oh, give us some food. Oh, you can piss off, go elsewhere. So uh, question number five, what two brands of stout was Marie drinking? Question number six, what could Marie not buy at the market that day? So when she was going along the stalls, what could she not buy? Question number seven, what was the fishmonger doing outside of the murder location when the killer smiled at him? Question number eight, what hospital did Marie recently go to for a week prior to her death? Oh, coffee's up. You have to wait for episode nine in a bit. Yep, I can see them outside my window. Swans. Oh, they're they're getting that algae off the bottom of the boat. I think. Let me just have a look. Yeah, they're getting algae off the bottom of the boat, but they're they're also saying, where's my effing food? Oh, it's just one. It's just one annoying swan. Well, there we go. I think I think they just know that I'm a soft touch. Piss off. Uh, so where did I get to? Question number nine. Uh, what job did Marie's lover, Norman Norris, do? And question number ten. What colour was Marie's hair? So there you go. We'll do the answers to those very shortly. So let's dive into some stuff to do with this place. So um, unfortunately, uh, the building itself has long since been demolished. Uh, 306 Euston Road, I've got some pictures of the pub itself, so the Adam and Eve, which was on the corner. So if you go up Tottenham Court Road, so from Soho up Tottenham Court Road, you get to Warren Street Tube Station, over the road, over the... uh, a501 which is built in the 1960s uh, over that on the left hand side you'll see a big tower block and that's Euston Tower that is where that is where uh, 306 Euston Road used to be it was on the left hand side and then Bath Row was kind of like a side street which was how you got entrance to it um, unfortunately that was long since demolished with the extension of the uh, the A501 so it's not there anymore uh what else we got uh it was above a radio store which was a part exchange uh it did easy terms for radios uh the radio uh, marie's radio uh, was actually bought by her boyfriend norris norris norton i think his name was uh on the ground floor uh Gulam lived there along with uh francis gomez uh francis was out at the time of the murder on the first floor there was another eva uh eva gorius who was a commie chef and kumus lacy who was a porter they were both out second floor was elsie 
She occupied the front room. The back room was unoccupied. So these are the same as all the other um, locations that we've been to before. It's above a shop, shop entrance by a street door. Uh, and normally it would be three flats. But what they've done is they've subdivided it, turned it to six flats. Uh, except the top one, uh, Eva uh, Schladva and her husband Kaufman uh, were on the third floor, which was the top floor. That swan is still there. Piss off! Unless you're doing, unless you're getting rid of the algae, then please do. Uh, so it was uh, quite a small room. She'd been there technically since May 1935, so she'd been there a little while. Uh, it had a little bed in there, a table, an armchair, a chest of drawers, and a washstand, a writing desk, and other articles of furniture. It had electric lighting, but she tended to use an oil lamp, which is how the fire started. Um, I'll give you some details about her. It was hard to pin down who she was because in the press they only talk about her being the French woman or French Marie or sometimes French Suzette, which was hope you enjoyed the little uh, deception I did in episode seven or eight when we were leading to the idea that he was going to murder another uh, petite French brunette who was known as French Suzette, which is te- technically true, technically true, but it was this French Suzette, not another one. Um, when you look at a lot of, if you think about it, like none of these prostitutes really use their names, so piss off that swan just won't piss off um that's really annoying um what was i saying about uh names so there's a lot of french maries there's a lot of french fifis a lot of french suzettes it's like it's just a name you pick up it's a name you use it it makes it easier to kind of get away with kind of piss off it makes it easier to get away with a lot of crimes because, you know, they, they say, oh, I saw a prostitute called French Suzette. It's like, well, which one? There's about a hundred of them. So, uh, but... Can you hear him? Just so annoying. Just piss off. Oh, uh, so yes, yeah, she went by multiple names. Uh, she preferred to be called Marie. Some people called her Elsie. Some people called her Charlotte. Uh, she went by... Uh, her her birth surname her married surname she even used her potential father's surname so uh, but some people also knew her as paulette god that that's one won't piss off it's really annoying it's like it's like there's so many boats to choose from what is he doing is he just banging on the side or is he just being a uh i don't know seems to be going i don't know whether he's he doesn't seem to be low enough to be going after the algae oh bloody swans uh anyway uh she was five foot three 48 years old medium build pale complexion rouged cheeks her hair color was as in the question um uh, she seemed to be a very nice person uh, she could get a little bit argumentative when drunk but everyone said that she was relatively pleasant she spoke fluent French, as you'd expect, but broken English, um, which is odd because her mother was English. Uh, at least, as far as we know, her mother was English. Uh, she may not have been. Uh, but because she was raised in France, that kind of throws everything off. Uh, she went into foster care in uh, Boulogne-sur-Mer in France, which is pretty much by uh, Boulogne, so northern France. Uh, I managed to pin it down to our day of the day convent. And she attended there until 1905 when she was 16 years old. She returned uh, 
so she must have had a connection to the West End, or maybe her mother had a connection there because they moved onto Whitfield Street, uh, which is just off Trafalgar Square. Her mother was living with a man, we don't know his name, apparently he was German, um, and he was the manager of Franscati's restaurant on Whitfield Street. We don't know much about him. It didn't seem to last long. She, did, she didn't seem to um, get on well with her mother. Um, later on, she when they questioned uh, different people who knew, knew about her life, they said she didn't know if her mother was alive or dead. So that's kind of what the relationship was like. Um, Victor Augustin Tolkien, uh, born 1888, was a French citizen. He would become uh, uh, her husband. Uh, he was living with his wife, Bertha, uh, on Whitcomb Street, which is uh, long since demolished. That's uh, just off um, Trafalgar Square. Uh, she was originally from Gould in Yorkshire. Uh, he was a resident of France. Uh, his wife died. Uh, Marie moved in to live with them and then she married him. Um, but was this a marriage of convenience? We don't know because she seemed to marry him when she was 16 slash 17. Um, she'd only just been in the country probably a couple of months. It, the marriage didn't last long. Um, he, sh She disappeared off with someone called Mr. Richard, who we know is French. So Mr. Richard is an alias. So I've got hiccups now. He was an alias. Oh, we don't know anything about him except he was called Mr. Richard, probably not his real name. Um, uh, the, she disappeared with him uh, from London to Paris, and then they went to Guadeloupe. So apparently he was something to do with the, the newspaper business. We don't know why they were there. We don't know what they were doing. She joined him there for about six years. <sighs> Just kind of vanished from that point. Um, she couldn't get a divorce from Victor. Um, they they seemed to get on well. Do you know, they didn't seem to have any problems with each other. They... they didn't see each other in 1939 he was listed as a widower um he was working as a still room man at mayfair court which meant he, um it was a hotel and it had its own distillery so he did that um some months later i think it was early 1930s um he bumped into her on a uh, in leicester square so, oh, so that's 1920. He bumped into her in Leicester Square and said that he thought she was living off prostitution by that point, which she was. Uh, it, 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 her life is incredibly vague. I mean, she moves around a lot. She doesn't seem to be in one place for too long. This seems to be the thing that happened in kind of the, the turn of the early century is that, unfortunately, I think we're going to end up that way in this country as well because there's... London is so expensive that people can't afford to buy places. Most people have to either live out and travel in, and especially in the heart of London, renting is just almost impossible now. So uh, back then, people were lodging kind of from week to week. So no one really owned anywhere. No one kind of had, had a, a, a place to settle. Um, we know that she was a, a prostitute, but she was more of a casual prostitute. She did a series of jobs as a waitress in several French cafes and restaurants. Um, Soho and Fitzrovia has a real kind of huge French community. So it's kind of easy for her, if she doesn't speak English, to kind of work in French cafes and restaurants. She was a chambermaid. She was a waitress. Uh, English wasn't good. It was incredibly limited. Uh, but, you know, fluent in French, so that kind of helped. She used prostitution to supplement her income. Uh, we've already mentioned about her two uh, criminal records. She only had two. 
Um, although, if my notes are correct, some it's I think some of it may have been missing. So this sometimes happens when you go in and the file is incomplete. Um, to ni- uh, October 1920, uh, at this point, a photograph was taken. Her fingerprints were taken as well. Uh, because don't forget she was uh, she was charged under the name of Elsie and her father's surname see I'm getting good at not giving away uh, quiz questions uh, because this was a false they, they used her photograph and they got her fingerprints therefore when she was next convicted they were able to say you're not Elsie your father's surname you are blah 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 uh, she was sentenced to three months in prison and released December 1920 uh, and that was uh, she was convicted at Marlborough Street Police Court again same police court that we've referenced a couple of times in here um like fifi and leia she didn't seem to associate much with many sex workers she knew she knew some she kind of would chat to them but she wasn't kind of she'd been a sex worker for years kind of casual she didn't really really know them that well many of them were friends but that was about it um many aliases as mentioned uh marie paulette suzette or the french woman uh what else we got what else we got uh her lover uh norris john norton born 19 uh 18 1890 he was 47 at the time so roughly the same age as her he lived not too far away on fitz uh, cleveland street in fitzrovia long since demolished uh he was in the habit of seeing her daily and assisting her financially he would say uh he met her 12 years ago uh, they've been friends for six and then they became more intimate he said we became friendly for the next six years but i became tired because of her excessive drinking uh, we were on intimate relations until about a month ago then i get uh, i've given her small sums of money from time to time and about six months ago i gave her a wireless set so that was his radio that he gave her that um kind of blocked out the noise of her murder uh emile uh jean emile louis armand uh this was um the kind of man she was seeing 1930 to 1933 um she was living with him and his wife then his wife died and she kind of moved in with him uh, we don't know whether he was her pimp he uh, norris would state she was always in fear of him uh, he charged her with stealing her wallet and again he threw pepper in her face in the street not a nice man uh he was always being uh she was always being asked by him for money uh she lived with him on chitty street which is in fitzrovia she called him papa uh he was deported four years ago uh he was 60 years old over six foot tall and wore gla- glasses so He's he's definitely not the man who was seen with Dutch Leia. Um, the question is, did he pimp her out? Or was he a ponce? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, they seem to argue a lot. He kicked her frequently out of the house. Uh, she moved into a lodging on Windmill Street, W1. Um, and then she moved into the LCC hostel in High Hope. And this was a women's hostel. Um, and he was deported 8th of February 1933. So that's four years earlier uh her work she did she did various jobs she always seemed to be working she always seemed to be trying to earn regular income she worked at the antoine cafe on charlotte street the howard hotel for a month the strand palace hotel which we covered uh with the the bernard 
the murder by Bernard Smith. Uh, the uh, the Ivanhoe Hotel in Bloomsbury. Don't know that one. Uh, she was there for six months and she left kind of mid December. Um, uh, she was at, she worked at the Cumberland Hotel in Marble Arch, which was where the Blackout Ripper made his first victim, uh, Evelyn Hamilton. Hamilton, yeah. Um, unfortunately, she had an accident owing to a fall when she was drunk. Therefore, she had to go to hospital. Where was the hospital? That's one of the quiz questions. Uh, her final job, she was still doing this job at the time of her murder. She was employed as a cleaner at the Ross Institute for Tropical Diseases at Keppel Street. Uh, this is now lo- known as the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. It's still there today. Uh, and she was on a fortnightly holiday from there and was due to go back uh, on the 23rd of August. So that's why she wasn't at work that day uh, and getting a bit pissed. She was on a holiday. I mean, that's what you do on a holiday, isn't it? Why not? Get pissed. Um, already mentioned about the flat. I think that's that. Uh, seemed to be quite a social person. Uh, she often drank more when times were tough. Uh, unfortunately, she started drinking at work, which caused her a lot of problems. Um, uh, and because of that, she started putting on a lot more weight. Um, Norris would say her her great weakness was her fondness for drink, and this was the reason for her dismissal dismissal from practically every situation she held. Uh, she was well known in most of the pubs in the local area, and as you've seen in the episode, she would go from pub to pub. She regularly took snuff and smoked a little bit, uh, and she purchased uh, the American magazine True Detective Stories from uh, the the stall at the back. That's not the quiz question. If you think I've given it away, I haven't. Um, there was a slight argument with Norris prior. I I didn't go into this in the episode because. The police had already looked into him and anyone uh, because in the earlier episodes we've all we've kind of gone, oh, there's potentially this is the police's key suspect. So we'll look at him and then it turns out not to be him. I thought, let's not go into all that again. Let's just cover it really quickly. All these men who are in their life, the police investigated them thoroughly nothing there's nothing there so we can just move on from that um he said i saw her at her rooms at, at 306 euston road on the 9th of august 1937 where i spent about a quarter of an hour with her somewhere about 9 30 i know of no one person associated with her answering the description we'll get into that next week uh the reason for this brief visit was the fact that she was half drunk and when in this condition condition was particularly quarrelsome Ordinarily, I would see her every evening and spend about an hour and a quarter with her, providing she was sober. Uh, when the police looked in the room, they found articles of men's clothing at the scene, such as slippers and a sports coat. Uh, but when they checked them, they turned out to be Norris's. Um, no one seemed to have threatened her at any point. She didn't seem to have any pimps. Uh, don't forget she's a casual prostitute she kind of only does it when she needs to supplement her income so this is not this is not a daily regular thing uh and because she's on holiday getting drunk why not earn earn a bit of cash on the side um this would have been a, a time before holiday pay as well so you know you're taking a holiday but you know you're not going to earn any money oh so there we go next Oh, that's all the questions. I'll do. I'll do the quiz questions in a bit. Oh, stretch. Oh, so uh, next week is the final episode. Um, no red herrings. Uh, we're going to dive into the prime suspect. Uh, no, there won't be any, one of these ones where we go. It's a possible suspect. This is the one. This is the one. Um, now, this was never reported in the press. 
Um, they didn't seem to make the connection. And uh, as far as I can tell in all of the police reports, because I've read all of the files to do with every single one of these cases, the police didn't seem to have made the connection either. Or if they did, they didn't put it in it into any of the murder files. Maybe they did make a connection. Maybe they investigated it. Maybe they... Um, Maybe they decided there wasn't enough evidence, but uh, yeah, this is um, in in order to solve the Soho Strangler case. This is this is about as near as anyone's ever got. There's been a lot of bullshit, which is why I've tried to go through all of the press reports and all the police reports and kind of I've tried to make this as balanced as possible. So when I give you something, I take it away, and I give you something else, and I take it away, and I try not to be too clinical about it because what i want you to do is to make your own conclusions about this so uh so next week we will dive into um the suspect the suspect the big one but is he the soho strangler it's up up to you to decide so let's do the quiz questions uh question number one what was french marie's birth name according to her birth certificate it was lottie astley she would go under the name of Elsie Lottie Astley, but that's not her real name. When you look at her birth certificate, it is it's Lottie is her surname. Uh, so Lottie is her first name. So, uh, but she changed it to Elsie Charlotte Astley. Uh, question number two: In what building was she born? It was the Croydon Workhouse. Uh, it was actually in the infirmary. Question number three: What was the name of her possible father? It was McMahon. Question number four. What job did Gullam Mustafa do? He was a waiter. Come on, PCAG. You've got to get this one. Question number five. What two brands of stout was she drinking that night? It was Guinness and Reed's Stout. Although he's a shocker for everyone. When I met up with PCAG a little while ago, he didn't have a Guinness. Didn't have a Guinness. He was joining me on the uh, on the neck oil. There you go. What's what's going on in the world? I know, I know. Question number six: What could Marie not buy at the market that day? It was meat for her cat. So back then they used to do a lot of cat meat stalls, and uh, oddly, um, I mean, it's, it's, see, you could make another connection here. People could go, "Oh my God, this is a, oh the connection." Do you know when people love to make bullshit connections and they go? Oh, you see these two things are they connected um there was a cat meat stall outside of marie's murder and one outside of red max's as well but so what so what it's like but, that, but that's what i'm trying to get across with the episode is you can make connections but if you want to see connections there will be connections but if you if you decide that there are no connections there are no connections it's information isn't as solid as it's meant to be it's it depends on how you present it and how you absorb it and if someone writes it a certain way you're going to receive it a certain way whereas if they write it a different way you'll receive it that way so you know it's a, it's a, this this whole series is about opening your mind and how you absorb things and how you take it on board and accepting the fact that when you have someone writing something or presenting something f for you it doesn't mean that that's 100% accurate that's just their interpretation and you have to and how you interpret it is your choice but if you can be more selective about what you're kind of taking on board letting into your head how you disseminate it then that's kind of better especially especially for true crime when it's kind of about solving things like sometimes people come out with some bullshit theories and you just go 
holy shit, you read one book and one documentary and you've stuck with that for the rest of your life. Ugh. So, everyone's different, everyone's different. Right, question number seven. What was the fishmonger doing outside of the murder location when the killer smiled at him? He was pumping up his bike tyre. Question number eight. What hospital did Marie recently go into for a week prior to her death? It was the Temperance Hospital on the Hampstead Road, um, which is only was only a couple of doors down from where the first possible murder victim of the Blackout Ripper uh, was found. Uh, and that's actually where she was. They reckon she was standing near the bus stop when she may have been lured in or dragged into uh, the derelict building. Uh, question number nine: What job did Marie's lover Norman Norris do? Uh, he was a draper. He ran a drapery shop uh, on Cleveland Street with his wife. Uh, and question number ten: What colour was Marie's hair? She wasn't a brunette. It was reddish brown, but. Let's not forget, this is kind of a key thing that I wanted to put in there because when you look at kind of how people describe the suspects, we, we've gone through this before about how people see the same person in different ways. But nighttime, it's like, how can you tell a person's colour of hair at night? You can tell the difference between blonde and black, probably, and then everything in between is a bit of a merge, really. So, do you know, some people say fair haired, some people said he was dark brown. Uh, sorry, she, um, he was dark brown but with her people would say she's brunette some people say she was red but she was more kind of a reddy brown so it's hard to pin things down oh that was a long waffle that was an that was an uber waffle so i'm gonna shut up now um that's me done i'm gonna go to the new starbucks have a walk along the canal because i've had no exercise today uh have a coffee and start editing this so i hope you enjoyed that that was part nine part 10 next week part 10 next week we'll do that coffee's about to spill do we'll do all that and then we'll have uh soho strangler week where i will sit down and i'll really instead of telling a story i will just go through all the facts and just we can try and disseminate it uh into pieces so there we go that'll be uh soho strangler week so i hope you enjoyed that have yourself a good week folks stay safe and be good lots of love bye bye even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.